The second tithe and the making of a strong society. Biblical Israel, from the time of Joshua until the destruction of the Second Temple, was a predominantly agricultural society. Accordingly, it was through agriculture that the Torah pursued its religious and social program. It has three fundamental efforts. First was the alleviation of poverty. For many reasons, the Torah accepts the basic principles of what we now call a market economy. But though market economics is good at creating wealth, it is less good at distributing it equitably. Thus, the Torah's social legislation aimed, in the words of Henry George, to lay the foundation of a social state in which deep poverty and degrading want should be unknown. Hence the institutions that left parts of the harvest for the poor, Leket, Shikhan, Peah, fallen ears of grain, forgotten sheaf in the corners of the field. There was the produce of the seventh year, the Shemitah, which belonged to no one and everyone, and Maseani, the tithe for the poor, in the third and sixth years of the seven-year cycle. Shemitah and Yovel, the seventh and fiftieth years, were their release of debts, manumission of slaves, and return of ancestral property to its original owners, restored essential elements of the economy to their default position of fairness. So the first principle was no one should be desperately poor. The second, which included Truma and Maseri Shun, the priestly portion and the first tithe, went to support respectively the priests and the Levites. These were a religious elite within the nation in biblical times whose role was to ensure that the service of God, especially in the temple, continued in the heart of national life. They had other essential functions, among them education and the administration of justice as teachers and as judges. The third, of course, was more personal and spiritual. There were laws such as the bringing of first fruits to Jerusalem and the three pilgrimage festivals, Pesach, Shavuos and Sukkot, as they marked seasons in the agricultural year, that had to do with driving home the lessons of gratitude and humility. They taught that the land belongs to God and we are merely his tenants and guests. The rain, the sun and the earth itself yield their produce only because of his blessing. Without such regular reminders, society slowly but inexorably become materialistic and self-satisfied. Rulers and elites forget that their role is to serve the people, and instead they expect the people to serve them. That's how nations, at the height of their success, begin their decline, unwittingly laying the ground for their defeat. Now, all of this makes one law in our parasha, the Maishasheni, the law of the second tithe, very hard to understand. As we noted above in the third and sixth year, of the Shemitah, the seven-year cycle, this was given to the poor. But in the first, second, fourth, and fifth years, it was to be taken by the farmer to Jerusalem and eaten there in a state of purity. Our parasha says, You shall eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks, in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose his dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. If a farmer lived at a great distance from Jerusalem, he was an allowed an alternative. The parasha says you may exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Now the problem is obvious. The second tithe didn't go to the poor 
or to the priests or Levites. So it wasn't part of the first or second principle. It wasn't about supporting the uh, religious elite, and it wasn't about alleviating poverty. It may have been part of the third element to remind the farmer that the land belonged to God, but this too seems unlikely. There was no declaration, as happened in the case of first fruits, and no specific religious services took place on the festivals. Other than being in Jerusalem, the institution of the second tithe seemingly had no cognitive or spiritual content. So what was the logic of the second tithe? The sages, focusing on the phrase, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God, said that it was to encourage people to study. Staying for a while in Jerusalem while they consumed the tithe or the food brought with its monetary substitute, they'd be influenced by the mood of the holy city, with its population engaged either in divine service or sacred study. This would be much as happens today for synagogue groups, for instance, that arrange study tours to Israel. However, Maimonides gives a completely different explanation, and this is absolutely fascinating. He says, in the Guide for the Perplexed, the second tithe was commanded to be spent on food in Jerusalem. In this way, the owner was compelled to give part of it away as charity. As he wasn't able to use it otherwise than by way of eating and drinking, he must easily have been induced to give it gradually away. This rule brought multitudes together in one place and strengthened the bond of love and brotherhood among the children of men. In other words, for Maimonides, the second tithe served a social purpose. It strengthened civil society. It created bonds of connectedness and friendship among others, among the people. It encouraged visitors to share the blessings of the harvest with others. Strangers would meet and become friends. There'd be an atmosphere of camaraderie among pilgrims. Because you had, for second tithe, more food that you could possibly eat, you invited people to share it with you. And that would create, in Jerusalem, in the nation, a sense of shared citizenship, common belonging, and collective identity. Indeed, the Rambam says something similar about the whole institution of the festivals themselves. He says the use of keeping festivals in is plain. Man derives benefit from such assemblies. The emotions produced renew the attachment to religion. They lead to friendly and social intercourse among the people. The atmosphere in Jerusalem, says Maimonides, would encourage public spiritedness. Food would always be plentiful, since the fruit of trees in their fourth year, the tithe of cattle, and the corn, wine, and oil of the second tithe would all have been brought there. They couldn't be sold, they couldn't be kept till next year, therefore they would be given away in charity, especially, as the Torah always reminds us, to the Levite, the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Writing about America in the 1830s, Alexis de Tocqueville found that he had to coin a new word for the phenomenon he encountered there, and he saw it as one of the dangers of a democratic society. The word he coined was individualism. He defined it as a mature and calm feeling which disposes each member of the community to sever himself from the mass of his fellows and to draw apart with his family and friends, leaving society at large to itself. 
Tocqueville believed that democracy encouraged individualism. As a result, people would leave the business of the common good entirely to the government, which would then become ever more powerful, eventually threatening freedom itself. It was a brilliant insight. Two recent examples illustrate the point. The first was charted by Robert Putnam, the great Harvard sociologist, in his study of Italian towns in the 1990s. During the 1970s, all Italian regions were given local government on equal terms. But over the next 20 years, some prospered, others stagnated, some had effective governance and economic growth, while others were mired in corruption and underachievement. The key difference, he found, was the extent to which the regions had an active and public-spirited citizenry. So public-spiritedness creates healthy societies and economic growth. Now the other is the experiment known as the free rider game. And it's designed to test public-spiritedness within a group. There is always a potential conflict between self-interest and the common good. It's tempting to take advantage of public facilities without paying your fair share. For instance, traveling on public transport without paying for a ticket, hence the term free rider. You then obtain the benefit without bearing a fair share of the cost. When this happens, trust is eroded and public spiritedness declines. In the game, each of the participants is given $10 and invited to contribute to a common pot. The money in the pot is then multiplied by, say, three times, and the amount equally divided between the players. If each contributes $10, each will then receive back $30. However, if one player chooses not to contribute anything, then if there are six players, there'll be $50 in the pot, $150 after multiplication. Each of the players will then receive one-sixth of that, $25, but one will now have $35, the money from the pot, plus the $10 with which he started. When played over several rounds, the other players soon notice that not everyone is contributing equally. The unfairness makes them all contribute less to the shared pot. The group suffers, and no one gains. If, however, the other players are given the chance to punish the suspected cheat by paying a dollar to make him lose three dollars, then they tend to do so. And what happens is the free rider stops free riding and everyone benefits. As I was writing this covenant of conversation, the Greek economy was in a state of collapse. Years earlier, in 2008, an economist, Benedict Herman, had tested people in different cities throughout the world to see whether there were geographical and cultural variations in the way the people played the free rider game. He found that in places like Boston, Copenhagen, Bonn, and Seoul in South Korea, voluntary contributions to the common pot were high. They were much lower in Istanbul, Riyadh, and Minsk, where the economy was less developed. But they were lowest of all in Athens, Greece. What's more, when players in Athens penalized the free riders, those penalized did not stop free riding. Instead, they took revenge by punishing their punishers. Where public spiritedness is low, society fails to cohere and the economy fails to grow. Hence, the brilliance 
of Maimonides' insight that the second dive existed to create public spiritedness, to create what is called nowadays social capital, namely bonds of trust and reciprocal altruism among the population, which came about through sharing food with strangers in the holy precincts of Jerusalem. Loving God helps make us better citizens and more generous people, thus counting, countering the individualism that eventually makes democracies fail.